Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. There are those who think there's a big fat line between fans and creators of popular culture. And let me put an end to that tussle right now. The fans are the creators and vice versa. The people who make the movies and TV shows, who write the books, who draw the comics, who make the music that we all consume are fans from beginning to end. In his youth, Joe Dante wrote letters to famous monsters of Filmland and columns for Castle of Frankenstein. Quentin Tarantino worked for years in a video store, absorbing a century's worth of film school and getting paid minimum wage for it. Sam Zimmerman edited Fangoria and now is a programmer at Shudder. Ryan Turek was known as Ryan Rotten when he wrote for shocktillyoudrop.com before becoming a hotshot executive at Blumhouse. I started consuming movies and TV at an early age. In junior high school, I wrote a fanzine called Coffin Capers that was mimeographed on school equipment and given away. I made eight millimeter movies like The Return of the Count and The Mad Magician when I was 12. I loved everything in the genre that I could get my hands on. I would go through TV Guide and mark the movies that were coming up and put big X's by them so I didn't miss them. And I wrote. First, short stories. Then in high school, my interest in music was overwhelming, and I wrote about music and movies. I started interviewing people like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Ray Bradbury, and Rod Serling before I was 17 years old. My passion for it all continued to grow, and it became my hobby, then my work. I never imagined I'd be able to make a living loving popular culture, let alone making it. But I wrote, and I watched movies, figured out how they were made, interviewed the people who fascinated me, just as I do here on every episode of Postmortem. And just doing it in the naive obliviousness of a passionate fan, I just did it, and eventually Steven Spielberg's people liked something I wrote, and I've made it my full-time living ever since. It's not magic, and it's not impossible. The creators are fans, and the fans creators. One of the greatest examples of superfan turned professional is our guest, Kevin Smith. The man is a veritable smorgasbord of popular culture, writer of comic books and movies, film and television director, podcaster, actor, television host, stand-up monologist, and the true king of all media. We'll talk about how passion and fandom make up the heart of most of the creators of what we all consume. We're very excited to have Shudder on board as a new sponsor for the Postmortem Podcast. People have referred to Shudder as the Netflix of horror, but it's way much more than that. It's curated by fans like us, people whose love and knowledge of the horror genre makes for an amazing streaming experience. My love for Shudder is personal, too. Our movie Nightmare Cinema is a Shudder original and available for viewing now. 
Friends of the podcast are well represented too. The last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs and both seasons of Greg Nicotero's Creep Show are available on demand. Neil Marshall's latest, The Reckoning, is a Shudder exclusive, as are other festival favorites like Fried Berry, which blew my mind when I screened it as part of the jury at a couple of the international film fests I've been to. Other favorites include Host, Richard Stanley's The Color Out of Space, The Mortuary Collection with Clancy Brown, and a whole bunch of others. Long unavailable to streaming, Shudder has also made the original Wicker Man, available, as well as new movies and old, from classics to exciting new movies from exciting new movie makers. There are films from around the world, including Alex de la Iglesia's Spanish masterworks Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango, and genre benders like Coralie Fargia's French thriller Revenge. It's a smorgasbord of horror delights, and most of the movies and original series can only be found here, on Shudder, at your whim, uncut and without any annoying ads getting in the way. You get unlimited access to everything. Slashers, creature features, ghost stories, edge-of-your-seat thrillers, supernatural terrors, and shocking horror in all its incarnations. And new movies and series are being added weekly to keep you on your toes. Shudder is available on iOS, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and Android devices. And you can get 30 days of Shudder absolutely free if you just go to Shudder.com and use the promo code POSTMORTEMDREAD. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and the promo code POSTMORTEMDREAD. You won't regret it. You know, there's something special about having a physical copy of a horror movie to add to your collection. I recently discovered Horror Pack, a subscription box that sends you four horror movies on Blu-ray or DVD each and every month. The Blu-ray pack always has a Horror Pack limited edition plus three other titles. The packs have a mixture of independent and mainstream horror, starting at $19.99 with free U.S. shipping for DVD or $24.99 for Blu-ray. Use code POSTMORTEM to get $3 off your first pack at HorrorPack.com. That's HorrorPack.com, H-O-R-R-O-R-P-A-C-K.com. Kevin, welcome to the slab. Good to have you here. Absolute pleasure, my friend. Hell of an intro. Thank you so much. I feel, I, thanks. Those of us, uh, we're, of course, we're in theater of the mind, the way I understand it, but I get to see your background and it's a wonderful brief uh, and, and encapsulated view into a career like a career that's been going longer than mine yours any name that i knew before i became a quote unquote professional in like 94 is a rock star name to me and and your name has long been one of those man you like me and longer than me at this point are a survivor in this business because you know how to um to adapt like you know if you're not doing the thing that you want to do you do this other thing that you also enjoy doing and so forth and so on and and because of that i think you and i have a survival rate better than a lot of filmmakers uh and and also i would suspect we're happier too the ones who are in it just for like you know the the the, the art of it all the film like film or die I don't think they could be quite as happy as those of us who, yeah, like film 
or watch film. You know, there are people that can't enjoy it. I come from the audience and I know one day I'll return to the audience. I'm shocked that this business hasn't made me do it already, but you know, this, thus far I'm still here. So I, I look forward to a time when I can just return to the audience and not think about what I'm bringing to the conversation, but I enjoy that part of my pedigree is coming from the audience. Uh, and, and it's weird because it's not like I make audience friendly films. Like clearly Steven Spielberg came from the audience and yeah. was out of play to a massive audience. I came from the audience, but more as like uh, when, when I jumped into film with the uh, clerks, I was more like, wow, they'll let me do this. The same spirit with which I jumped into podcasting in 2007. I'm like, nobody's saying no, like I could do it. Podcasting <laughs> way cheaper than movies, you know, as we know. But yeah. like it, it, it was something that that I didn't see myself doing. Like I'd just been a long time movie fan. My father would take me to the movies when I was a kid. I was not a sports person. I was definitely more about entertainment, like watching TV, watching movies, watching the behind the scenes of things. Nowadays, you go to the internet for that. Back then, you know, you had to hunt a bit further to find things about how things were made. So I assumed my whole life I would just be a like, you know, we didn't have this term back then, but a pop culture enthusiast, just somebody who <laughs> likes, just like back then we call them somebody who likes movies and, and shit or whatever. So I thought I would be that person till the day I died. And I know I will be that person till the day I die. But I also got afforded this weird, rare opportunity as a consumer of pop culture to also generate a little bit along the way in the process. And that has been the mind bender. But even throughout that part of the journey, which has been you know, unexpected, unearned, and, and just like a lottery that really worked out, luck and timing, I've never lost sight of the fact that like, I love this shit more than most people love this shit. And I'm not just talking about my shit. I'm talking about all of this stuff. Like this is the stuff that was my sanctuary. This is the stuff that continues to this day to allow me to be the person that I most want to be in this life, a veritable child, essentially. You know, I saw what adults looked like when I was a kid. My father was one. He worked for the post office. He had a real job in the real world and shit. And I remember asking him as a kid, what did you dream about doing when you were my age? And he, you could tell he was a little like insulted by it. Like, what do you mean? As if he'd given up his dreams or some such shit. I was like, well, I know you didn't want to work at the post office. And he said, I dreamed about getting married and having kids. And the post office just pays for that. And, uh -huh. you know, his was the last generation of my family that was content to just have a job because you need that to pay for what you really love in life. The next well, my father, at the, not to interrupt, but no my worries, father please. was, a, he went to art school and was mm. a brilliant artist and oh, actually did muckle. graphic novel, uh, novel stuff before it was called graphic novels. And he made a deal with King Features to come out with a book of one of his graphic stories. Mm -hmm. And he had a uh, he had a meltdown and couldn't do it because he was working two day a day job and a night job raising four kids, mm -hmm. never made a penny off of his art. Oof. Not but, one. But and what was it like to be raised by an artist? Like I was raised by a man and I love him to death, and he's been long dead and stuff, like almost 20 years now, 18 years. But he, he was never, I wasn't raised in an environment which was artistic. Nobody was ever like, you could do this. If you could dream it, you could do it. People make movies, why not you? My father took me to the movies all the time, but never once said, 
you know, if you like it this much, you could do this sort of thing. People actually do it. So, I, you know, I got to where I was going, um, not even despite my parents or in spite of my parents. They just never, you know, I might as well, they might as well have encouraged me to fucking build a rocket to Venus. <laughs> like that was the, the shot of me being a filmmaker as well. What was it like to be raised by an artist, somebody who did believe in art? And even though, as you say, like, you know, had the meltdown in the face of the opportunity still and didn't make any money off his art, still lived as an artist. The job, it sounds like in his life, was just something to pay for the fact that he wanted to pursue art. He wanted to, but he gave it up. It was so difficult at the time. Mm. And by the time I was old enough to know that he was a an artist who wasn't able to pursue that Mm. As a business, I have never even imagined it could be pursued as a line of work. And my dad had pretty much given it up by the time I was old enough to know. Then my parents split up when I was about 13 years old. Mm -hmm. So both of my parents were creative, but there was they never discouraged me from doing what I was doing. You know, I wanted to draw. I had some art talent, but never Mm. really developed it and started writing. And even though it was horror stuff that most fascinated me, they never discouraged me from that. So the encouragement was implicit rather right. than explicit. So but, you, you too never got like the sit down kid. I'm going to tell you that never. art is the way to go, you know, never, but he would draw cartoons with me occasionally. Mm. There, there, I have three or four memories of that happening. It was a very rare thing, but we would draw cartoons together watching the Flintstones or something. And it was, you know, those are the most cherished moments I have of, of my dad by far. I have mine. My dad was not a drawer by any stretch of the imagination. So I don't have that. But what I do have was shared media, TV and movies were our thing. Like he had three kids. I was the youngest of the three. And you could tell that early on, he was like, oh, the the fat one likes movies. That'll be our thing. And so he would take me to the movies. We'd watch TV together. But one of my favorite memories about my old man and one that still warms me to this day was watching an old TV show, which I'm sure you'll remember, not horror oriented, but since we back in the day only had three channels, like it was tough to, you you didn't, wasn't that difficult to know literally every show that was on television, let alone watch it as well. So the show that my old man and I would watch, oddly enough, aside from like Six Million Dollar Man and and stuff like that, it was because my father worked at night. So like he didn't get to watch nighttime TV with us, but a lot of afternoon, particularly Saturday and Sunday afternoon TV, Bowling for Dollars. Oh, yeah. With my old man. (laughs) And he would lay like next uh, kind of like big box television set. He'd lay, I guess, perpendicular to it. Like, you know, and I would T-bone him. So I'd be facing the TV and using him like a, his stomach, like a pillow. Wow. And he'd be kind of looking over his, his left shoulder to watch the TV. Some of my fondest memories of my old man are not like, we had this great conversation or we played this game or we, it's literally like, you know, quietly watching one of the most boring TV shows ever produced. <laughs> that, is, that is truly beautiful. Did you ever call in and participate in the game? No, my father uh, ardently uh, loved the show, 
but we were lower, 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 lower middle class. And those phone calls cost money. So we were never allowed to participate. Just like growing up, I always wanted to participate in, um, on WPIX, they had a video game show at one point, like 1982-ish, I believe it was called. Between the cartoons, they would have like a live call-in. It was called TV Picks because it was on PIX. And right. um, the person at home would say picks to make the person in the studio fire a button on a controller at like this uh, uh, Intellivision video game. It was kind of like a little bit like Space space Invaders. You were There was a target though, and you were trying to hit a moving ship. So the, you know, the kids tried to play artfully, would like wait for the ship to come in front of the, you know, this, the uh, eyesight and then be like picks, but forget that you are on a phone call with somebody and there's a time delay and stuff. The smart kids, you know, they would be like, ready and go. And they would just go, picks, 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 just rapid fire mode. So I remember asking my parents one day, like, please, I, I know I can beat this game. You know, all I have to do is say picks super fast for 30 seconds. Please let me call in. And they were like, a 99 cent phone call? Like, <laughs> what? what is this? You know, uh, uh, some sort of catholic charity like so i never really got to partake i got to watch though i was a dirty cuck as a kid mick but i didn't get to partake <laughs> well we first met when we both had offices at alphaville on the universal lot you were prepping mall rats i was prepping an ill-fated version of the mummy that never got made so we're talking like circa 1995 Yes. So George Romero had left to do another project that went belly up uh, and I took over and did a rewrite. And so we were both working. This was your first studio experience. You mm -hmm. were given birth in the most exciting time for independent filmmakers in the history of cinema. Oh, yeah. So you were there in the mid 90s when Miramax was the only game in town and they had such power that your little $27,000 movie mm. was in 50 theaters across America yeah, and making money. And this little homemade DIY movie became a sensation. So now what was the experience of having that happen and your little homemade movie become a sensation and influential. And then you go to a studio where they give you the, the reins of the next one. How did that feel? And you know, that transition. The first, the first one though, uh, to address the feeling of like the, you know, clerks is the nearest appropriate is when you look at the Disney Aladdin cartoon where you know the young aladdin like literally makes wishes and they come true um that's what clerks felt like you know it didn't feel manifest it was never like yeah of course they picked it up is that good you know it's like this movie was made with spit glue faith you know and a lot of fun but no expectations there was a a roadmap provided by richard linklater with his film slacker and it had gone to the uh, IFFM, the Independent Feature Film uh, uh, Market, which was run by the IFP East at that point. So, you know, I was like, okay, that's where he got found. And then Orion Classics bought the movie and then they distributed it in theater. So, you know, we're going to go to this IFFM, which was not even Sundance. It was a marketplace thing in New York. So we tried to follow his path, what he had done. And it didn't quite work out for us, but then we tripped into Sundance instead. There was a very influential voice in indie film named Bob Hawk, who had 
worked on uh, the Times of Harvey Milk documentary. He's a big fan of indie film and big Sundance uh, advisor. He had seen Clerks at our ill-fated screening at the IFFM where nobody was there except for oh, the crew and, this, and the cast and this one guy. And he started the ball rolling. He started telling people, like, I saw this amazing movie. Like, you know, so it looks like it was made by children. I think it was, but like <laughs> it works and blah, blah, blah. So that, 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 that was like, you know, I had like one, I would say three day, two day period. No, I'm sorry. It's not even that. It's so unfair. Less than a 24 hour period of my life where after I had made clerks, I was like, that was such a stupid thing. I never should have done that. It was after we had our IFFM screening and I hoped like Richard Linklater, somebody would be there to buy the movie. Nobody was. And, and I was like, oh my God, we're done. I don't know what else to do. Sundance was never even a thought because Sundance to me was like, you know, color films with people you've seen and things. James Spader was in uh, Sex, Lies and Videotape. So I'm like, I can't compete with that. Sundance ain't for a filmmaker like me. So the fact that like, you know, we, we went home, we had 11 o'clock in the morning screening on October 3rd, uh, 1993. It was a Sunday morning. And like the marketplace was pretty much done on a Sunday morning. I thought they'd put us there because I was like, they know we're quality. But instead, <laughs> we were just kind of dumped there and stuff. So I thought it was done. I had the pleasure of watching my movie die as the first step in my career. I mean, you make the movie, which is like, you know, monumental, particularly where we were coming from. Then when I took it like out into the world, the marketplace, like I was faced with instantaneous failure that didn't last very long, but still, I didn't know how long it was going to last. I was like, this was the only goal I had. And, and now we're done. Nothing's going to happen. Went home that day, licked my wounds, woke up the next morning, the phone rang and it was uh, Amy Taubin from the Village Voice. And I had used her article about Richard Linklater taking his movie to the IFFM as my roadmap. So she's talking to me and I'm like, this is not Amy Taubin. This is one of my friends who like know that I bombed miserably yesterday and now you're just you're being cruel. And she's like, no, I am. Who would ever lie about being me? And she's like, I called the number in the book and it was your your house your father answered and i was like yeah i put my parents number down and she was like well i want to see this movie i heard it's it's funny and my somebody i trust told me to see it bob hawk started the ball rolling i had two more phone calls that day one was from larry cartish from new directors new films he was like come play at the festival that was huge none of these people would tell me who hipped them to the movie and then the third one was peter broderick who wrote for filmmaker magazine and he had written an article that we used to model our budget after. Because back in those days, I don't know if you recall this, nobody would share their budgets. Everyone was super circumspect, circumspect about their budgets. And they're like, well, we can't let you know the secret sauce and stuff. So for a young filmmaker who knew nothing and didn't go to film school, it was tough to figure out what a movie cost. But this article that Peter Broderick had done in Filmmaker had three different uh, directors. One was Nick Gomez. One was Greg Araki, and the other was the gentleman who directed Together Alone. And each one listed the budgets of their movie. Nick Gomez did Laws of Gravity. It was about like a $30,000 movie. Um, but Together Alone was two people in an apartment movie of $7,000. So we found our budgets like somewhere between that. We just did guesswork and whatnot. So that guy calling to be like, I want to showcase this movie, you know, in the new article. I was like, this is nuts. Who told you about us? And it was this guy, Bob Hawk. So from that moment forward, 
Bob was like, submit to Sundance. This is absolutely the kind of film Sundance should be showing. We did, we got into Sundance and the movie got bought and stuff. So it was crazy. It was like, you know, a, an absolute boob behind the camera, an amateur who just loved movies, but didn't know what he was doing in terms of moving a camera around and stuff. Um, got very, very lucky first time out. So that was nuts. It was a year long experience from Sundance, like of January, 1994, movie came out in like October of that year. So for 10 months, we were just on the festival circuit and everyone loved the movie. It was crazy. Mallrats moving into that was, was, you know, awe inspiring because we were going to make a movie at Universal Studios. They made Jaws. They made the, the Blues Brothers. In the world. Yeah. They made Animal House. They made The Breakfast yeah. Club. Like, oh my God, this is for real. Never mind like Miramax, which is an indie art house label that picked us up. And that was the gold standard in art houses. But still, this is Universal you know, Studios for heaven's sakes. So going into it, there was a, it was easy. There, there was a tiny period of transition though, where like in the script, um, and I've, this is going to be a, a bit, um, untoward in terms of com content. So I'll try to use euphemisms. Oh, we are uncensored. Don't worry about it. There you go. All right. So here, here we go. So in an early draft of the Mallrats script, Jane Silent Bob keep uh, running into Gwen with a character like Silent Bob puts his head through the wall while she's getting changed like twice or whatever. Um, we had one more where they were watching her get changed and you see like them kind of jerking off and then something launches up and then goes over and you hear Gwen go, ah. Then the next time you saw Gwen, her hair was all like matted for the rest of the movie and stuff. And I remember somebody, Nita Jacobson was working at Universal at the time. She goes, Kevin, that's a bridge too far. You can't put a scene in a movie with a woman with a bunch of cum in her hair. It's gonna turn the audience off. And I was like, you know, I felt dirty. I was like, oh my God, you're right. I, I went too far, my bad. And I pulled it out. Then like two years later, Yes. <laughs> like, not only did the Fairley brothers, like, make it work in a movie, they put it on the poster. Like, Cameron Diaz has it in her hair on the poster. So I'm like, times change. So little adjustments like that were made. And I remember, like, Nina gave me the widest possible audience speech. And, and I'm not demonizing her. She's wonderful. Yeah. But her point was this. She goes, like, you know, Kevin, that joke is just, like, too far for somebody, some people. And, like, taking out something like that, makes the movie more palatable to the widest possible audience. And is there really anything wrong with playing to the widest possible audience? And I was like, well, I mean, I, I guess not. She's like, isn't that what you want as a storyteller? For as many people to see it as possible. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess that absolutely makes sense. So I adjusted quickly, you know, in a world of like, yeah, compromise. They're giving me millions of dollars. So I guess I got to listen to their suggestions. I was not the enfant terrible. You know, I also had, as we mentioned, uh, the Alphaville connection. Jim Jacks was yeah. our godfather. So you're talking about a man who had been a universal exec before he jumped out with Sean Daniels and, and later on Cotty Chubb and created Alphaville as their own production shingle, which had done well at Universal, but never did as well as when they eventually got to make a mummy movie at a completely different studio at Paramount. Like it was crazy. So I was part of a long tradition of movies with Alphaville that, you know, people loved, but didn't break out huge. And Jim was always looking for a hundred million dollar grossing film, which he eventually got to and stuff. But I'm coming into Alphaville around like a few years after Tremors, maybe two years after Tremors. Mm -hmm. 
uh, six months after uh, Dazed and Confused, mm -hmm. um, about a year after, or right, was it around the same time as Tombstone? Right. So like, you know, Alphaville had movies that people really dug, but none of them had punched through in some big mainstream successful way. But Jim was very respected and he, you know, took me and Scott Mosier, my producer, like under his, his wing and was just like, we're going to make this. He had a vision for the movie. He always called it. He's like, this is going to be a smart Porky's, which I was <laughs> like, I never thought Porky's was that dumb. I actually thought it was a kind of smart movie. Yeah. So he wanted to bring back the R-rated as he called it, teen titty comedy. He was like, they don't um, make Sean, them anymore. Sean had so much luck with Animal House, being the production Where, executive on Animal House. He created, in many ways, he didn't create one, John Landis, and of yeah, course the, the National Lampoon guys did, but, but he was the young exec, Sean Daniels, who was on the project, you know, where Tom Pollock was like, keep an eye on these, or, or Lou Wasserman, whoever was in, in charge at right. Universal. You know, and all of a sudden Animal House comes in, turns into a hundred million dollar grocer and Sean becomes the president of Universal. He was the mayor of Hollywood for like yeah. a long time. Yeah. So him, you know, between those two titans, we were kind of protected. But Jim, too, was like Jim, as much as he wanted to make like the bring back the R-rated teen titty comedy, he was very squeamish about language. You know, the fuck count was important to him. He's like, we already have 15 fucks in this movie. <laughs> He's I'm in like, business with the wrong guy. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that only 15. We got to fucking load it up and stuff. I remember when Affleck was coming into audition, we'd never met Ben Affleck before, but we, you know, had knew him visually from we saw his headshot. We're like, oh, that's that's O'Banion from fucking uh, Days of Confused. The guy with the paddle is beating everybody up. And Jim Jacks goes, oh, Affleck, he's going. I don't. I don't want him in this movie. I said, Why? And he goes. He's got a potty mouth. I was like, potty mouth. I was like, he sounds like he'd be at home in our movie. And he's going. No, Rick had only like five fucks in Days Confused. And by the time that Affleck got there, he was saying fuck, 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 left and right. And then everybody started saying fuck. I don't need that on this movie. Um, as it turns out, we got Ben anyway. I brought Ben in regardless because I thought he was just so damn charming. And stuff. Good choice. Yeah, it kind of worked out. So yeah, that it was making the adjustment wasn't as as weird as it is for some. Like I remember Richard Linklater talking about it and being like, "Oh my god, the freedom that I lost and stuff." And I, I didn't didn't feel like I'd lost that much freedom, but you know, they hit me with logic and my <laughs> and my Catholic guilt over like, you know, being involved in something where $5 million is involved because I'm like, I got a story I want to tell. Like, I'm already carrying a lot of fucking guilt. So if they're like, take the come out of this, I'm like, oh my God, you're right. Please don't tell my mother I put that in there. I'm so irresponsible. So the shift was pretty easy for me. The big transition was, you know, Clerks was insanely praised and people loved it. And comparatively for its box office, it did incredibly well. Mallrats, when it came out, was the exact opposite on all fronts. Yeah. Like, critics hated the movie, chastised us for making it. The box office, it was less than Clerks, even though it played on more screens. And, you know, it, it, I'd never, you know, been involved in something like that before. And it's crazy, like, to, you know, again, I was raised Catholic and I was an altar boy for many years and I made Dogma. So, the reference I always bring out is it's like, you know, when when Jesus gets arrested 
<laughs> and everybody they're like hey i saw you with them and peter's like who geez i don't know that guy you know and everybody's denying the relationships they've had and somewhere a cop goes crows three times because everyone's scared to be around something that is suddenly toxic what was once so filled with joy this movie that we all went to camp to make together and made these big long-lasting friendships we're like, oh my god fucking, we're in the movie business young kids in our 20s the moment it detonated as a bomb, everyone goes fucking running. Like people. So stop. you were the king of, of of the of the city, and suddenly you are in the gutter. I was flavor of the month, and then I melted <laughs> the next year. And you know, it was it was a strange transition to make. I f felt bad about it more than anybody else cared about it. It seems like you know. I again, I'm. I'm Catholic and I was, oh, I was Catholic. And I was such a drama-rama that I was like, I lost somebody $5 million, you know. <laughs> I talk about it in the press. I remember giving an interview in like premiere, they pulled the quote out and I was like, you know, I've, I'm sitting in the corner of my room, got a stack of bad reviews in one hand and a shotgun in the other. I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> so I, I certainly played it up a, a bit. But like the crazy thing about it is Mallrats is the, the golden child now. It's the exact right. opposite of what it was when it came out. I had no idea. Nobody sat me down and said, don't worry. You're, you just made a cult movie. You just don't know it yet. You know what a cult movie is. This is going to be one of those. Like, you know, I've I had thought, that experience as well, where something comes out, it's, it tanks at the box office. The reviews are terrible. And then 30 years later, well, like Hocus Pocus, which I wrote is now the most popular or Halloween movie ever. So much and, so that they're like, we're making another one. And even beyond that, but nothing to be announced yet. But, right, right, right. But, um, you know, Sleepwalkers was successful financially to a degree, but not well regarded. And even my first movie, Critters 2, they're now way more popular than they ever were when they right. were originally out. And it's like there's some valediction that happens is you know and mall rats is the perfect example do you know what it is it's like we are you know back then particularly i don't know if it's the same anymore because distribution has changed but everything is was about that opening weekend you know yeah. your whole fate is written in in three days so you can spend a year two years of your life building this fucking thing this this beautiful self-expression or whatever it is and then in three days or less, let's be honest, in 22 hours, you you could find out it's all over. And that's what happened to Mallrats. Like Jim Jacks called us on Saturday morning and we were like, how do we do, man? He's like, we made $400,000. I was like, on what screen? He's like, <laughs> all 500. And I was like, oh no. He's like, yeah, it's over. So there was no like, oh man, like it'll grow up and I'm sure people will find it. It's just like it's over and it's dead. So I had the benefit of watching it over the years. Like for 10 years, it was the whipping boy reference where I was like, hey, man, don't mind me. I made mall rats. And people were like, right. uh, particularly after chasing Amy, because they're like, look, he well, seems to know that he fucked up with mall rats. So now we'll laugh and move on and shit. And then 10 years after mall rats came out, I realized I was the only one poking fun at mall rats, the only one still talking about what a flop it was. People were like, that's no flop. I have it on DVD. I was like, do you realize those two things are not equated one iota? Yeah. And I was wrong. 
because they well, it's a very defensive. Way. It's a very defensive place to be, where yeah. you protect yourself from the pain by denigrating your own work. Absolutely. Now, I would say that you, maybe more than any other filmmaker I I know, mm. um, your films reflect who you are. Mm. They are incredibly personal, and the more independent you get the more personal they are. You know, you've had your cop-outs and your Zach and Miri make a porno uh, and those experiences, but Chasing Amy was your third movie and that was a masterpiece. Oh, uh, and, and your writing, you know, your films are very simply made, mm. but intricate, in, intricately written. And your dialogue, your all of that is so it really came to a peak at chasing Amy and stayed up there. Uh, and and people recognized it, but the more it seems, the more freedom you have, the more fully you express a really unique point of view in, in film. Probably true for like everybody, right? Like, you know, if there's less thought about appealing to the mass, then you're just kind of like, all right, well, then I'm just gonna play the game. It's all the difference between you know, hey, man, you're an NHL player. So fucking we pay you millions of dollars. You better play this goddamn hockey game right. And you better score and win or you're going to yell that and shit. Or, hey, who wants to play hockey? Like, you know, that's to me, I prefer the latter where it's like, this is fun. Like, you know, I I got a kid. She's 21 now. She's an actress. And, and I'm so happy for her because from a young age, I was telling her like, you know, figure out what you love to do and then figure out how to get paid for it. Like, that's what I did. And, you know, I never thought I'd get into the entertainment business, let alone I'd have a kid that would like, I'd, there'd be a second generation of us. in it. <laughs> so I, you know, I love the business so much, but I think, you know, I, I realized early on that I'm not cut out for the business, like as business proper, like everything. It's not like I was like, I, broke the mold but i just didn't want to do the standard things like i was more interested in other things i like i came from fandom so i was interested in talking to the fans like not so much the critics you know i knew the press was important like i was happy to talk to press but once the internet opened up to me like in 1995 like we had a message board on viewskew.com i could literally get in touch with the audience and that was the game changer for me that's where the freedom came from you know i got in touch with them in the wake of mall rats and a bunch of people that found me online there were only two filmmakers online at that time it was me and peter jackson he he wised up and got off and won some oscars and shit. i've been stuck on the internet for years so i you know i fell in love with with talking to the audience because i'm like that's that's who i'm interested in. i'm like who the fuck like pays 10 10 bucks on a Friday to go see this shit. Like, I really want to get inside that person's head. Like, because if you like the movie, I think you're going to like me because the movie is kind of just an extension of me. So I started interacting with, with the audience in a big, bad way. And then that, I realized that was where my absolute freedom lied. Now they call it, there's names for it, direct to consumer, shit like that. Right. But for me, like for years, people are like, oh, he's got that audience. Like they'll go see whatever he does or whatever. I mean, I wish that was true. I wish that I could count on them. Like Woody Allen seemed to have an audience that was good for a certain number that no matter what he did, right. they'd come in for and stuff. He like made that. anything he wanted anytime he wanted. Yeah. And apparently did anything he wanted, but that's a discussion for others. And stuff. <laughs> Another um, but, uh, but yes, the, the, the notion that like, 
I had an audience was something that I thought was great when I heard people say it, but then it was something that they would try to like beat out of me on the studio side, even on the Miramax side, like well, the notion of, of, uh, of sorry, go ahead. The, the notion of um, like, I'd have a joke in chasing Amy that refers to like clerks and they'd be like, why do you have that? That runs the risk of alienating somebody. If they hear five people laugh and they're not laughing, they feel stupid. And I'm like, well, I, I'm in it for the five people. Like, <laughs> I like that they went to clerks and they're they're going to understand this joke. Like, it's going to make them feel fucking smart and stuff like that. And I was always discouraged from doing that. They're like, don't connect your movies like that. And I'm like, they're already connected, like Jay and Silent Bobber and everything. They're like, yeah, but it's too inside baseball to reference the other movies. Now we live in a Marvel world where, like, if you don't connect your property, your IP... Like you're considered dense. Everyone's figuring out how to try to weave their shit together and whatnot. So like for me early on, there was freedom in the audience because I knew I could count on on them. And there's still freedom today. Nobody, there was no studio in the world. I mean, Universal bought some foreign, but no studio in the world was interested in making Jay and Silent Bob reboot, the movie we made in 2019. Yeah. I knew I could tour it. You know, I knew that I was like, I've toured podcasts and shit like that. So I know the audience will show up and pay 60 to hundred bucks to watch it. And you know, they're, they're, they're suddenly it's not about quantity, you know, it's about quality. And, and like, I can focus on one massive room full of fans, a thousand, 1500 seater, give them the time of their life and then move on and stuff like that. So that came from, from the audience freedom to like explore things and try things. And, and also if you're going to explore and try, you could be more personal. And my personal extends beyond the writing the screenplay. I engage them in the making of everything. They hear about it when I first get the idea. They hear about it while I'm trying to put it together, trying and failing in most cases. They hear about it when it finally works. They hear about it when we're putting it together. Like the narrative doesn't begin once the curtain goes up on the movie. For me, it starts long before that. And it will continue long after the movie's over. Like, you know, I'm still talking about clerks. It's been 27 fucking years. Yeah. Name another filmmaker who's still talking about their first film. Chris Nolan, he never talks about following, let alone, <laughs> let alone Memento, which is the Memento. movie that broke out. But I'm still to this day not only talking about clerks, but we're heading into like clerks three. So, so that's I, finally happening, clerks. It is, yeah. We get to make it this We've summer. Been it's taken me like like six years or more. There was a different version of it that we were going to make like years ago. The the new incarnation more reflects like me in the last few years. The, the I had a heart attack a few years ago. So the main character, one of the main characters in Clerks 3, um, Randall, the video store guy, he has a massive heart attack. And like he realizes like I haven't done anything with my life. He's going, I don't have a family like you. I I own a small piece of a convenience store in New Jersey. And he's like, I, all I did was watch movies, other people's stories my whole life. He's like, well, fuck that. I could have died last night. So you know what? When I get out of this place, I'm going to make my own movie about working at that stupid store and you're going to help me. And so Dante and Randall essentially make clerks, you know, so we bring the snake comes back and eats its tail. So for me, it's, you know, clerks was the most authentic movie I probably will ever make in my life because I was literally working at the store while I was making a movie about working at the store. And that movie is about, you know, as much as it's about the relationship between the two dudes, it is also about dealing with the public um, in a very particular prison, the retail over the counter prison. 
I haven't done that in years. You know, I deal with the consumer all the time. I got customers and fans and stuff, but like, can't tell a story about, you know, how wacky the customers are anymore because I'm not boots on the ground for that. You know, in clerks too, you can see that. Like, it's not really about, you know, isn't aren't the customers frustrating? It's more about the characters at this point and the environment and stuff. So with clerks three, like I look at clerks two and I love it. It's one of my favorite films I've ever made, but to me, I'm like, well, that's artifice. None of that really ever happened to me. I, in fact, I never even worked at a, at a fast food joint in my life. Clerks 3 feels closer to Clerks for me because it's authentically based on something real. Just like Clerks was based on, I literally worked at that store. Clerks 3 is certainly based on the heart attack. Now that we're based at the Dread Podcast Network, I'd love to bring you up to date on some of the Dread Presents movie releases. Now available from Dread Presents is For the Sake of Vicious, where an overworked nurse returns home to find a maniac hiding out with a bruised and beaten hostage. When an unexpected wave of violent intruders descend upon her home, it becomes a fight for survival. Available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray. Now available also from Dread Presents, Benny Loves You. Jack, a man desperate to improve his life, throws away his beloved childhood plush, Benny. It's a move that has disastrous consequences when Benny springs to life with deadly intentions. Available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray June 8th. Coming soon from Dread Presents, Queen of Spades. According to legend, an ominous entity known as the Queen of Spades can be summoned by performing an ancient ritual. Four teenagers summon the Queen of Spades, but they could never imagine the horrors that await them. Available on demand everywhere on June 15th and on Blu-ray June 29th. So check out the upcoming and current releases from Dread Presents now. Well, speaking of that, in the very beginning, you talked about us being survivors. We, we are in, we share that in more than one sense in that I've never spoken about this before mm. other than to people I'm close to. Mm. But in the middle of January, I had a Widowmaker heart attack, the same thing you had. This and January that just passed, 2021? January that just passed. Um, it is a heart attack that you have a 12% survival rate. It was 88% that you and I would have died from these. Oh, my God. They, the they gave you better odds, Mick. They told <laughs> me. Uh, my doctor was like, uh, you know, uh, before I dive in, you know, because he put a stent in me. He's like, before I dive in, he, you know, he's like, uh, I just got to let you know, you're a comic book guy. You'll like this. He's going, they got a name for this heart attack. I said, what is it? And he goes, it's called the Widowmaker. Yes. I was like, why? As if you need to ask. <laughs> like, uh, because in 80% of the cases of 100% occlusion, which is what I had full blockage. He goes, the patient always dies. He's going, but you're going to be in the, in the 20% because I'm good at my job. And he disappeared into my crotch and made magic save my life. But you, you, you know, I got 20% odds. They told you 12%. Yes. So they said it's up to 12%. I had a hundred percent blockage as well. Now we have very different lifestyles Yeah. for the last two. You, you don't look like you should be having no Widowmaker. You look very thin and in shape. Well, for the last 15 years, 20 years, I've been vegetarian and then 10 years as a vegan. Mm. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never had an alcoholic beverage. And despite my rock and roll uh, past, I've never done 
recreational drugs. Mm. But so we know what your story is then. It's genetic. It's genetics. Goddamn parents. You That's know? what I said too. I was just like, you know, oh my God, man. Like I, I said, this is too much. Uh, little Debbie Swiss delights over a lifetime. I said, I put myself here, but the doctor was like, no, you had help from your parents. You know, the doctor was just like, what's your the doctor told me when Dr. Leidenheim was like up in me, which sounds sexier than I mean it, but he <laughs> stent to you kind of, they go, they punctured my femoral in my groin. And that's right. how they go up to your heart. There's either they could do that. They can go through your wrists. I've met people who are like, Oh, they went through my wrist. And then, of course, the worst option is they open up your chest. They don't. They tend not to do that so much anymore unless they're doing, you know, that kind of surgery. Um, so, in the case of of what we had, they they chose to go through like the femoral on me. And me too. Yeah. When he was up there, he said, like, um, you know, he was like, "Oh, uh, I could see it right now." You know, he's like the blockage that you got and stuff. And and he goes. Uh, I said, he goes, I'm going to put a stent in you. Do you know what that is? And I said, yeah, my mom has a stent or two in her heart. And he goes, wait a second. Does your mom, is that he goes, is there a history of heart problems in your family? I said, no, my mother just has a stent in her heart. And my father died of a massive heart attack at age 67. He's like, we got to no, go. No, no history. Yeah. 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 And I, my dad was diabetic. So I was always looking for the diabetes bullet my whole life. You know, I was always looking for that bullet and trying to, even though I didn't eat like I was looking for that bullet, that was what I thought was coming to get me because there's so much diabetes on his side of the family. What I forgot to pay attention to is the fact that my father did die of a heart attack at age 67 and my mother had like a couple stents in her heart and died on the table at one point during her heart oh my surgery. God. So, you know, love my parents to death. They made me who I am. Um, in so many ways, not just like, you know, by having sex and bringing me into this best of all possible worlds. My father shaped the interest that would shape the rest of my life and, 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 uh, give me a career and stuff like that. Um, and they, you couldn't ask for two more supportive people. They, they may not have been visionary enough to be like, you should head toward entertainment, son, but yeah. they were certainly didn't stop me from doing it. That being said, you know, two of them got some bad tickers and have passed on a bad ticker as well. So, you know, I changed my life after my uh, widow maker where I went vegan, you know, you were vegan beforehand, which seems yeah. fair that you had a <laughs> widow maker. Like mine I was mean, denied like, all that. Oh, I know denied all the good stuff for what? Yeah. Exactly. As you were sitting there, you're, right there now. Yeah. you're like, I, I should be eating steak at this point. Yeah. But for me, it felt like the punishment, like we're well, not the punishment, but like, Hey, you live the way you wanted to live and look what happened. Now try this. And I was intent on trying veganism for like two months to appease my kid, but it stuck. I was like, you know what? I can, I can deal with this. I don't miss anything even to this day or anything, but you know, I got more active. I wound up dropping a bunch of weight, went vegan now hike Runyon, but no matter what I do, like you're living proof doesn't matter. Like you're a healthy fucking dude and perfectly in shape and stuff. And yet your heart was like, nah, fuck you. And just attacked you. Same thing. Yeah, but The difference would be if I didn't live that lifestyle, I doubt that I would have made it. I wouldn't have been in the 12%. It's true. It could be, but I mean, then what's my excuse? I guess Dr. Leidenheim <laughs> well, is the, really it comes down to like, I spoke to Dr. Paula is the, if you, know, you probably met her somewhere along the way, if you make movies in this town, you got to go get your physical before you. Make oh yeah. It. 
Dr. Paul is this wonderful little woman who's been giving me physicals like ever since, I don't know, maybe like dogma or something like that. Maybe Jane Simon Bob Strike Back. That was the first one. So I came in after, you know, I'd had a heart attack and it was pretty public and stuff like that. It was the first time seeing her before I got my physical for Jane Silent Bob reboots. This is 2019. And she's like, oh, you, you don't know how lucky you are. I was like, oh, I know. Everyone's been telling me, man, I was 20% and stuff like that. And she goes, no, no, no. She's going, let me tell you a story. Back when I'm cutting into people, she said, I was in a room, me, three other heart specialists, guy on the table that we're working on, open heart. She's going, bam, heart attack right there. I was like, well, at least you guys are working on. She goes, not the guy we're working on. One of the doctors. Has oh, my God. Massive widow maker drops to the floor. And oh. she's like, but if you're going to have a heart attack, at least have it in the hospital surrounded by professionals with the right equipment. And oh. I was like, so you guys saved him. She's like, that's the point of my story. No, she's going, we had all the tools. We were in the right place and we had all the talent. And she's going, it did not matter a difference. She's like, the widow maker does what it does. And she says, those odds are right. She's going, it's, it's, not about how gifted your surgeon is. It really comes down to, did they get you there in time? And then even in those cases, she said, sometimes they just flatline on the table. She's going, you have no idea how fucking lucky you are. And I was like, I get it. I get it. I get it. So I yeah. think about that all the time. You and I are breathing rarefied air. Like, I don't know how you felt after you walked out of yours, but like, you know, the whole experience, the horror show of it, literally 36 hours i was in the middle of a yeah. performance like we were shooting a showtime stand-up special i was doing and i'd done right, silent block. but deadly yeah yeah silent but deadly right, i did the first blended. block yeah. and then the second block i was supposed to do but then i had the, the heart attack and stuff so you know i went into the hospital i was out within 36 hours the doctor even said that doc's like how do you feel i was like i feel great man i'm gonna feel great and he's going yeah that's a problem i said why he's going because we've made it so easy he's going time was we used to have to saw your bones open, crack your chest, get in there and deal with your heart. And you'd have to spend six months recovering and you'd know you went through something and you would change your life. He's going, but now look at you, 36 hours later, you're out and you feel great. He's going, a lot of people leave here, feel the same way and they don't change their life. And then I see him again, if I'm lucky, he's right. going, so, you know, the rest is up to you. So I you know, took him seriously because I was like, look, can't fight genetics that that die has already been cast but i don't have to help it along so exactly. i yeah. want healthy and stuff how did you you feel i walked away from it going oh i'm living on borrowed time so now i approach everything like oh shit like do it before you drop dead like you know my wife is like this is rather grim but i'm like i don't feel i said i look we're all living on borrowed time i'm just now yeah. acutely aware of it act accordingly and stuff did yeah, you walk away I, from that? I had the exact same experience of 36 hours in and I was out. Mm. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I never felt like I was in jeopardy. I denied that it was happening for three hours because I thought, you know, my lifestyle, I exercise, all this. This can't be a heart attack. And finally, it was like, no, nope, time to call 911. And they came over and you are having a heart attack and right into the hospital. But coming out of it, it was like, because it was easy and it never felt like it was going to kill me, I never had those revelations, you know, those seeing beyond the, uh, the, the stars in the sky. Right. But 
but it definitely is like, do what you're going to do now and don't put it off. Oh God. Yeah. You and know, we, we live in that world. Like we breathe, already breathe verified air. Cause like we, we're scam artists. We make a living out of making pretend like yeah. that's the biggest scam on this planet, man. I don't care. Everyone's like politics, this or that. If you can figure out how to get some grown ass adult or company to give you money to do something, A, you were probably going to do for free anyway. Right. B, something creative and childlike, like make pretend and be like, you be this guy, you be this guy, this guy's this guy, let's go. That's the greatest scam in the world, man. It don't yeah. get better than, than that, other than being born stupid rich, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, but then I, you don't have the creative mind that goes with it. The gift I mean, of gab that you possess, particularly. <laughs> I mean, you do these stand up shows. Mm. It's not a stand up comic who has written a bunch of jokes. You talk about your life seemingly off the cuff, surely the same thing, topics, but not the same words. Mm. And it is such a one on one conversation with an audience they're listening yeah. to you but you're having a conversation you're not telling jokes you're yeah. hilarious and you do this on tour as a comedian would yeah it, it became Phenomenal. it came out of the thank you you're so kind it came out of the movies though like you know as you know when you make a movie if, they, if you go to a festival a movie plays and when it's done they're like get up here and answer questions right be now, entertaining yeah. yeah but for me i you know I've been to many Q and A's and I'd watch filmmakers speak. And when they can speak with erudition, you know, it makes sense. Like you see Martin Scorsese talk after the movie. He's, he probably knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so I felt like they're going to put me up on the stage. I've made one fucking movie. I don't know what I'm talking about. So I didn't feel the need to be erudite as much as I felt the need to be entertaining. Right. I'm like, if they're sticking a mic in my hand, I better try to fucking be charming and make them laugh. You know, I love comedy. So I was like, hey, you know, just try to tell the funny stories. Let me tell you a story about how we got the cat to shit on cue or something like that. <laughs> People kind of like that. And then I kept doing it. Like during the festival route, I realized like we were at Houston for the Houston world fest and we had a screening and went great. And then afterwards did a long Q and a and stuff. And then when the Q&A was done, we went outside, me and Scott Mosier, and we we're cigarette smokers then, so we were sitting there having our cigarette and filling, feeding the cancer genes. And then everybody's letting out, and people can't see us because we're kind of behind the door. And I hear two random strangers have a conversation that changes my life. And one goes, what'd you think? And the other guy goes, I thought the movie sucked, but the fat guy was funny after. <laughs> and right then and there, I was like, I reached him. I didn't get him with the movie. Yeah. But I got him by talking after the movie. So I was like, there's a second bite at the apple for me here. You know, if I don't get him with the movie, I could put on the charm offensive afterwards or just be flat out honest. Be like, look, look, Bruce Willis wouldn't talk to me or whatever. Fuck, just tell him the story and maybe win them with that. So, you know, next time around, they're like, well, I like the last movie, but like I did like when he told the story. So maybe I'll check it out. So I kept that kind of going because it felt like decent insurance you know and also let's be honest like we make these things and we know what a herculean effort it is to get anything fucking done in this business and you know nursing an idea all the way to reality is like you know it feels amazing you want to tell everyone that story and for years 
that's what I was interested in as a fan. Like, I didn't give a fuck about listening to some actor talking about what it takes to play this, that, or the other. I wanted to hear from the filmmaker how hard it was to make this shit happen and the the joys. I read the making of film books that like Spike Lee wrote. And, it, you know, it wasn't because I wanted to find out about the movie stars. I wanted to see what was going on in the filmmaker's head. So when I had my opportunity and people were like, what's going on in your head? It felt more natural to be like, well, here it is. And none of it has anything to do with being a professional. It's more about like having fun and telling you the fun making up stories. Part of it was borrowed from, this is so crazy, but you know, growing up and you've, I'm sure you're familiar with the Cannonball Run movies and most of oh, yeah. the, the Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise canon during the credits of their movies, they would run outtakes and bloopers. And there they all were having the best fucking time making <laughs> the movie. You just watched the movie, which was vastly entertaining. And then you see that as they were making it, they were all having a fucking blast. And it just made it seem like the greatest job in the world. So it was one of the things that drew me toward like the entertainment industry in the first place. Being able to like pull back the curtain for the audience and be like, this is how this shit gets made, man. Like this is how the sausage is made and telling stories, war stories about how things come together. Humanizing stories about like the actors that they see in other movies and you tell stories about them where they're like, oh, that's actually fucking funny. That to me, like, became more appealing than making the films themselves, where I was like, well, I guess now I got to make the movies so I have something to talk about when I go out and fucking speak. Because I'll be honest with you, I make more money. Now I, for the last 10 years, primarily make my living off of standing on a stage and speaking. And I make a healthy living if I go to work as a director, but I make a way better living talking about it. Like, for example... I got into directing some uh, uh, CW shows for a minute, directed yeah. four yep. Supergirls and three Flashes. Now, right. as you're well aware in the world of episodic TV, it, it doesn't pay you enough to be like, I'm going to do this one job and retire forever. Like, <laughs> obviously sure. not. Now, they pay more than my old man made in a year, you know, at yep. the post office. So it's nothing to sneeze at. But like journeymen directors, uh, journeywomen directors, tend to have to do a couple different series if they're going to make a living, a couple different episodes per year if they're going to make a living out of it. So for me, it was more about fandom. I was like, I get to direct fucking Flash. I'll go do it. Yeah. Like, yeah. And what I realized very quickly was, you know, you go away for, you're on the clock, let's see, you shoot for like nine days with a swing day and they give you like, there's a week of prep and stuff. So let's say you're up there in Vancouver for like three weeks of your life and stuff. Right. I could make more money standing on a stage in one night telling the story about how I worked on Supergirl for a month mm -hmm. than I did for making Supergirl for a month. So at a certain point, I would take jobs so that I could have a bunch of material, like, you know, in my real <laughs> job. So I take the directing job because I was a big fan of the of the franchise, big fan of the, 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 the creative team. But then what I'd really get out of it wasn't the financial remuneration. It was being able to stand on stage and be like, so let me tell you a story about like me going to work on Supergirl for like a month because I could get like a good 45 minute story out of that. And if you're doing a two hour show, that's a lot of content and stuff and it's fresh content. It's not me going like, let me tell you one more time. That's Superman story. You always got to right. keep the material fresh. So one could feed the other. And at a certain point, like, you know, I entered this business, like I'm, I want to be a filmmaker. And at a certain point, I got to this place where I'm like, I just want to be Kevin Smith for a living because I could afford 
to do that. Filmmaking is definitely part of the equation. It's part of the fabric, but not the driver anymore. Mm -hmm. And in that weird way, it's given me even more freedom to be as personal as I want. Cause now I'm really like, well, you know, this ain't about appeasing a corporate uh, structure or, you know, some fucking money that we have to hit this figure. Now it's kind of like, you know, after the heart attack, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm just going to do this until I drop dead. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to have fun doing it. And it's not going to be about, career trajectory it never was you know obviously i was never on like all right if i do this this and this i could win an oscar or i could become that guy that makes all the money i'm, I'm more interested in making kevin smith films and nobody else is, wants to do that if i don't do it it don't fucking happen you know they got a billion people to make a marvel movie only one person interested in making this kevin smith nonsense and so since it's such a rarefied field and one in which i can't get judged against others because who else is making kevin smith movies Right. I find it very comfortable now where I'm just like, I used to put away, you know, the interconnected movies of the VSC universe. You know, I read online at one point, Ew, he just keeps making those movies with Jay and Silent Bob. And I was like, <laughs> I better change. I better change. Now I'm just like, yeah, like, yeah, I keep making those movies with Jay and Silent Bob because that's who I am. Like, and, and also if I don't do it, it never happens. And I happen to like these fucking movies. And, now I've kind of gone off and done a bunch of other things. Like, you know, there's a part of me that was like, let me see if I could be a real filmmaker, not just like Kevin Smith. And that's what Red State was. Red State, one of my, my proudest achievements in filmmaking, don't look like a Kevin Smith film at all. looks like- and It's a great movie. And, oh, and, you're so sweet. And it was surprising to see you jump into the horror genre with that mm. and with Tusk. And I love Yoga horror. Hosers. I love, I mean, and Yoga Hosers are hard because it's just fucking terrible. A lot of people hate it. But, but, uh, <laughs> but I people, mean, Tusk and Red State are both very different from one another, but, but very, and they're still Kevin Smith movies, but they are real balls to the wall horror movies. Oh, that means the world coming from you, sir. Yeah, I believe me. Before I ever wanted to be an indie filmmaker, I wanted to be Tom Savini and Rick Baker. Oh, I wow. loved horror movies and I loved rubber masks and I loved prosthetics. And so I wanted to do that too when I was a kid. I wanted if, to. Make if I had movie. gotten Tom's book, Grand Illusion. Yeah, it probably would have changed my life. Like you were talking about a time when you'd read about it in Fangoria, but it wasn't readily available. I couldn't go buy it at the bookstore or something like that. Nowadays, I could just jump online and in worst case scenario, go to eBay. I always feel like if I had found that book at a young age when I wanted it, I would have put everything into being, you know, a rubber mask maker. The problem is I'm, I have zero artistic talent <laughs> <laughs> and that really requires an artistic talent. It's not just like, it's easy to mix up red, you know, red dye number five and caro syrup. Right. It's, it's different, an art form altogether. I've, I've gotten to watch Robert Kurtzman do it. You know, like, yeah. you know, to handcraft something out of plastic, you have to be artistically gifted. So I guess it was never going to work out, but that was my first passion. I was a big horror kid. I always loved comedy. But like, you know, SNL and stuff like that. But horror, man, like, you know, as an 80s horror slasher movie fan, we first got cable in 1982. So I got to watch Friday the 13th Part 2 over and over <laughs> and over and over again. So it was always there. And, you know, I never really had an exper experimental part of my career. It began with Clerks and like kept going. And I felt like Red State and Tusk 
were my experimental films, like, you know, me doing genre, so to speak, or whatever. Like well, how not just genre, are. but it also had, particularly Red State had something to say. I mean, the Brightboro mm -hmm. Church kind of thing was yeah. really powerful and something people did not put into horror films. Yeah. It, at that to time, me, especially. To me, it was like, the, well, what's more horrifying than this? Like just recently I watched um, Them, on Amazon. Oh, the new series, yeah. Oh my God. Like, you gotta, I take my hat off. It is truly horrifying. Now, you know, hard to watch. very hard. That's how fucking horrifying it is. Like, I know a lot of people like to talk about Midsommar and, uh, and, um, and Hereditary as yeah. like, oh, you gotta look away and stuff. But like, they, you know, with them, there were whole storylines that like, you know, it's not looking away for a moment and looking back. You're just like, I, everything about this is horrifying. Like I, and, yeah. and at the same time, so much of it was rooted in reality. That's what made it even more so. Right. So for me, when we did Red State, it was horror of the kind of like, can you believe there are people that fucking talk like this and think yeah. this way and stuff? And Tusk was definitely, didn't have as much on its mind as Red <laughs> State for sure. But yeah, but it was an real original concept. And very body horror oriented yeah. and your stuff. Cronenberg movie. It, oh my God, you're you are too fucking kind, Mick. <laughs> Nobody in the history of Tusk has ever said that, and that compliment went right to my head and heart. Like, yes, I guess it is my, <laughs> my scanners, or or uh, I mean, it's certainly not my dead ringers. That it's your awesome. your brood. Yes, it is my brood. There you go. Excellent call. <laughs> but. What what was first, comics or movies for you, or TV? Um, I think probably the easiest access was TV. As a 70s baby, I was born in 1970. Like, you know, there's always like a TV in the house. And, and by the time I could remember, going as far back as like, you know, my first memory is like 1972 or 73. We had a, a big old color TV, you know, that. and when I say big, it wasn't the screen was big. They, they were built into these giant wood consoles. They were pieces of right. furniture right. long before they started hanging them on walls and stuff. So, you know, I was allowed to watch a lot of TV as a kid and not in push to go out and do things. My parents weren't like, you gotta go play baseball and shit. The only reason I joined Little League was because I loved, you know, the Bad News Bears. <laughs> then when I found out you couldn't just curse and be bad at it, like I wasn't interested in playing little league anymore. So like for me, the, the, uh, the, the TV and movies first and foremost, um, comics came in after like, for example, like for me, life begins with jaws in 1975. Like I remember my parents taking us to the drive-in to watch that and being terrified. And the only thing they wouldn't let us watch Mick was like, they covered my eyes when they uncovered the remains of Chrissy oh. <laughs> during the autopsy scene, everything else I was allowed to watch like this horrifying fucking fish eating people and shit. And we lived on the Jersey shore. It really fucked me up. I never went swimming. <laughs> like very comfortably after that. Steven Spielberg really did ruin the, the ocean for me in a good way. So it was it was like TV and movies first, and then comics came on the heels uh, of that. Like I was always way into the Super Friends and all the cartoons. And so then I, it's, I segued into my interest in comics. I remember like my father taking me to get a haircut. I think age six was the first time I get to take it. He takes me to get a haircut at his barber, Vinny the barber. 
And when I get in there, many of the barbers cut my dad's hair first. And he goes, under the TV, there's comic books. You know, you can you can read those to occupy me. And they had a Neil Adams, Batman right on top and a Spider-Man right under that sad sack, hot stuff, little devil. Wow. And so, you know, suddenly I was diving into the pages and whatnot, but we were not like wealthy. So I couldn't even like collect books every week or whatever. It was catch as catch can. Never mind like trying to follow a story across 12 issues. Like right. I didn't live in a world where you could get access to every one of those issues and stuff. So TV, I always had access to, you know, practically raised me for heaven's sakes. And then I had more access to the cinema than most kids because my father that was our bonding thing where he'd take me out of school on Wednesdays for like a half day wow. to go to the matinee for like yeah it went on so often I remember the first time my mom was like your dad's coming to get you today tell the teacher that you're because I went to Catholic school our lady perpetual she's like tell sister Gloria Louise that your aunt died that's why you're leaving. And I was like, Aunt Barbara died? She goes, no, you just tell her that. You're going just to tell the nuns your aunt died. Just lie to them. Just yeah. lie. And then it became a regular thing with my father where he would take me like every other week to go to the movies on Wednesday. And every time my mom would be like, tell him this relative died. Tell him this relative died. <laughs> the nuns got, got like so smart quick. They were like, Kevin, you got a lot of dead relatives. It's well, like, you do have bad genes. <laughs> it's true. They came I, from I, somewhere. If only they'd live long enough to see now. They'd be like, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> he, had, he had fucked up genetics in his family. <laughs> well, what's great is you had this great success first with Clerks and then a career that just keeps going and going and going and allows your fandom to express itself. You can afford to write Green Lantern. You can afford to to do the comic books mm. with DC and you're more of a DC guy than a Marvel guy. It's my first my first I mean, yeah, I guess at heart in terms of books I was more of a DC guy. My first professional work with the big two though, was at Marvel. I did a run of daredevil. Yeah. And then, but, 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 but I, you know, I love DC and I loved Batman and I loved green arrow. So my first big DC book was, was green arrow. And, right. you know, it, Marvel, I, thank God daredevil was my first Marvel book. Cause I was a huge daredevil fan, Miller daredevil fan. But if they had been like, we want you to write, you know, uh, fucking Captain America, I would have been like, nah, it's okay. So yeah. they got me with the right character, or at least I got with the right people, Joe Cassad and Jimmy Palmiotti. So yeah, I've, I've loved, I remember like early on, an old agent of mine was like, um, how much you make to write these comic books? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, it's about 100, 200 bucks a page as the writer. He's like, how many pages? I was like, 22. He did the math real quick. And he was like, you don't make any money doing this. He's going, I can get you like rewrite works on, uh, on scripts. You get paid like a hundred thousand dollars a week. I was like, I don't do this because I want the money. I do it because I can't believe somebody's going to let me fucking write Daredevil, a book that I've been reading religiously for years and years. I don't do this because I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going to get rich. This is going to pay my bills. I do it because like I get to write Green Arrow, even though like, you know, it was only five years ago that I read The Longbow Hunters. Never did I dream that I'd get so close to the character that I'd get to pen these, these uh, famous icons, put words in their mouth. So uh, everything I've done, I've always kind of proceeded more as a fan who's like appreciative and lucky to get to pull this shit off. And mercifully, the things that I was interested in early on 
the culture shifted in that direction. You know, I don't, it had nothing to do with me. I'm not saying it was my, I was responsible, but for a guy who was talking about comics for years, you know, this is a golden age. Once Marvel studios started happening and shit, I was just insanely well positioned, you know, as the guy who's been, Oh, he's been talking about this shit for years. Haven't you? And so now you do it on TV as well for years on comic book men. You we know? got to turn it into a TV show at one point. Like I've made money off of being nostalgic and reminiscent. Most of my work, oddly enough, is predicated on, on the past. Like when I broke into this business, they're like, he's the voice of the future. And now everything I do is like, you know, we're about to make clerks three. That's predicated on the past. Comic book men, seven seasons, all of it predicated on old toys and old comics on the past. I spent the last year, two years working on uh, an animated series for Netflix with Mattel Television, Masters of the Universe. That's an old IP as well. So I found this really nice, comfortable spot. Like uh, business seems to have use for me if it's uh, reminiscing or, or nostalgic. Um, yeah. and, and that's nice. That gives me just enough interactivity with the pros and stuff. And then I get to fuck off at home and do what I do with Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah. Well, I, I've discovered. I did a handful of um, episodics mm -hmm. and it was something I was never that interested in getting into, but I found I really enjoyed myself. They're mm -hmm. great people to work with. You have all the latest toys at your disposal. Um, you know, the, the visual effects and techniques I've never worked with before. Uh, one show I did on, on um, once upon a time, mm -hmm. I had the most emotional sequence I've ever directed in the 30 some years I've been doing this. And even the cast and crew were crying on the set as we're shooting it. And it's like, awesome. I could have turned this down and I had the best time and you're in and you're out and you, it's somebody else's responsibility, which is both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. But it's really, uh, it was surprisingly fulfilling to me. And, and I heard you talk about it on Silent the Deadly, and it seems to have been the same way for you. Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite things to do, number one, it's good practice, keeps you sharp and stuff like that. Um, you walk away feeling so smart because you're like, oh, Jesus, I know a lot more than I give myself credit for and stuff. <laughs> um, I wound up being an elder statesman on the show where, right. you know, by virtue of the fact that you're just around long enough, a lot of the people working under you are younger and have like, you know, I, it's a wonderful thing and I love it. And it happens like every, literally every day of my life. I hear from somebody who's just like, I'm only in this business because I saw Clark. So I met a lot of those cats on that crew and stuff like that. My favorite thing about it, about doing episodic work is you get a chance to come in and be like an absolute legend. You know what I'm saying? Like you get to come in and be the best time they ever had. That was yeah. my thing on the CW shows on flash and Supergirl. Like, you know, I, I, I was applauding after every take and, and, you know, I was like, come on, what the fuck? When people act, you gotta give them their propers and stuff. <laughs> so much so that at the end, like Supergirl was the, the t-shirt they gave out at the end was like, I got the clap from Kevin Smith. So <laughs> like, like you know that they brought me back for that alone they're like oh my god he's got such high energy it's so fun to be around him. it helps if you love the material yeah. like being on supergirl i was like i love the show anyway being on the flash the same thing but that became my favorite part is like showing up like literally rocking everybody's world for a week to two weeks and then leaving and then like coming back and hearing you were the gold standard where they're like after you left like, man, it wasn't as fun anymore and shit like that. That, that to me, 
was was so such a wonderful feeling and it comes from experience it comes from like oh this is what it's like on my sets so like i get to do a mini version of what i do here and you know they're like oh man like we'll work for you so i love and you that. bring out the best in all of those people you know when they're enjoying it and appreciating your enthusiasm for it it's very it it's catching they get to see it through a different prism you got to think like so they're there every fucking week like right. we get to come in and, and carpet bag and like be tourists <laughs> that cast that crew every damn week every damn day of every week they're hearing these dopey characters names and situations and plots over and over again and stuff so if you come in and you're like like one of the things i was always happy like i went to um I worked on the Goldbergs, did an episode of the Goldbergs. And then like you know, months later, I came back, did another one. And I was like, let me tell you something, man. I went out into the world. You all live in your fucking brick building here. And you never get to leave for six to eight months of the year. So you don't know what it's like out in the real world. You have no idea how many people love this show and it makes them happy. And how many of them came up to me to praise me for fucking being involved with it and shit like that. Like, what you're doing here matters. I know sometimes you get tired of it and sometimes it's like frustrating because it seems like it's a lot of the same shit, but you got to realize this shit literally saves lives. This make is the difference maker for a lot of people, man. Like just, if you don't believe me, you go watch fucking Sullivan's Travels. You'll exactly. get a refresher course. Like what you do here is important. And that kind of thing like pumps people up, man. They're like, fuck yeah. Like, thanks for the reminder. And so- Bringing that kind of enthusiasm to the set, they, they'll they'll want you to come back. And then it's easy to come in for a short period of time and be that. Now, you know, that you've got producing directors on shows who don't have the luxury of like, you know, I'm going to come in and be charming as fuck because they're like, I got to keep this shit on the rails. <laughs> yes. You know, I always take advantage of the folks that will, like when I'm on a show, they make the show every week with or without you. Like, right. you know, if it ain't you yelling cut in action, some other fucker is going to be doing it. So, like, I lean heavily into that. Like, I've never walked into any of them and been like, here's my vision for shit. You know, I'm <laughs> like, what's the most efficient way that you guys do this? Let's do it that way, you know. And I, my big thing I enjoy doing is getting people out early. Like, you know, because if you're the guy that can get motherfuckers home by 3 o'clock and shit, oh, They'll work like crazy for you, man. They'll give you everything, blood, sweat, and tears. You're allowing them to go home and spend time with their family. Now, some cats I learned, like I was the king of that for a while, where I was like, oh, shit, we got done like fucking three hours early. Enjoy, everybody. Uh, what you don't realize is some cats get paid hourly. So, like, I remember at one point I was I was working on one episode of Supergirl, and the guy was telling me, one of the crew members, he was like, it was like my fourth episode. And he was like, um, and we we love it when you come around because like we get to rap early and stuff. It's always a good time. And I was like, yeah, right. And he's going, good thing. You're not the director every week though. <laughs> I, I'd never hit OT. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, like when we go home, we go home, we don't get paid for that time. And I was like, it never occurred to me. I thought like you were like me, you just get one flat salary. And he's oh, going, no, look, they want those 16 hour days. They do. They do. And he's going, but, you're welcome when you come. He's going because every time you've come, you've come after five hard episodes. He's going right. where like everybody was putting in 16, 18 hour days. So by the time you roll up, 
it's vacation time with Uncle <laughs> Kev, and we're all happy to go home at three o'clock and shit. Kevin's here, fun time. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Celebrate. Well, Kevin, uh, this could go on and on and on. We barely scratched on uh, so much of your life and career. And I just want to thank you, and I hope we can do this again sometime soon. Anytime you need me, man. Uh, let me tell you, with that Cronenberg observation <laughs> about Tuskmeck, you, you, you can come sleep in my house anytime you want. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, it was a real pleasure, real uh, honor, man. Love talking shop with somebody it's who's so been doing fun. it longer than me and stuff like that. Wow. And here's something you were talking about before about things aging well. I remember when the the stand came out, the miniseries, and it had its attention that it had, but it has aged so insanely well, uh -huh. which I'm sure you have felt over the years, man. M O O N, that spells moon. Like it is utterly fucking watchable and got even more so as time went on. That's what I've always found, like that people really oh, embraced okay. that as time went on. It, it was, I'm not to say it wasn't embraced when it came out. It absolutely was, but it aged incredibly well. And, and not to raise one and lower another, but like we just saw it happen again. Yeah. And it still holds up really, really well. It's a great story. It's a great yes, story. it really is. But okay. it is also masterfully told. Well done. That really means a lot to me, Kevin. I appreciate it. All right, let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.